praise the Lord. You know, some of these young people, they get up and they sing, and it's, I look and I think how far God has brought and how their lives have changed in the last three or four years and what God's done in their heart, and I appreciate uh, their heart for the Lord. Uh, as we get started this morning, I want to just take a minute and wish Happy Father's Day to all our dads out here. If you're a dad this morning, stand for a moment. Let's see where you are. And uh, I think that we've got uh, a great number this morning, and we're so glad that you're here. And thank you for your investment and influence in our lives. Uh, and so let's give all our dads a hand this morning. And thank you. You can be seated. <clears throat> all right. As we get into our message this morning, as did their fathers, so do they. Um, if we look at this this morning, what's taking place here really uh, is um, a, it, it's dealing with the nation of Israel. And so we know and if you are familiar with the nation of Israel as a whole and then the divided kingdom in Israel and Judah, then you know when we, uh, when we go to talk about Israel, there's not going to be a lot good to say about their spiritual life because Israel just never really in this age had it together. They never had one good king. They did not ever have one godly king that led the nation in, in righteousness. Uh, and because of that, they are continually under uh, judgment, under invasion, under uh, God trying to get their attention so that he can speak to their heart. I find this passage a little bit unique in that, uh, that as God rebukes them, and we'll see this in just a little while, uh, he's not rebuking them with a strong hand of uh, hearken to me and I, or I'm going to bring severe judgment. It's a more gentle nudge. It's not that God hasn't given them harsh messages in the past, uh, but that's really not his approach in this particular passage. As we, uh, where we began reading where the king of Assyria comes in, what he's doing is he is trying to repopulate uh, the nation of Israel with uh, other people from his kingdom so that he can assimilate uh, the, in, in, all of it into one basic kingdom. And so they brought in a lot of people into Israel. Now Israel had uh, a corrupt form of worship already. Uh, their worship had already been compromised, uh, but it gets worse. And we're going to see that as we go along this morning. As we think about this in that final line here in the chapter, final uh Phrase as did their fathers, so do they. Uh, I think that that that's not hard for us to look, even in our culture and society today, and see uh, how true that can be. Uh, now, there obviously are always exceptions. There are times when uh, when uh, you know folks will be corrected. God intervenes and saves a soul, maybe, and puts someone on a better path. Uh, but ultimately. In most scenarios, whether our father was a godly man or whether our father was a godless man, uh, has had a huge impact on formulating our lives, how we think, uh, how we process information, what our outlook is like, what our likes and dislikes are, uh, the, the things that we tend to like to do as hobbies, all of those things, every element of life. There are few relationships in our lives that are as powerful as the relationship of a father to his children. Uh, and God designed it that way. God designed it that way uh, for a number of reasons, but I believe that the primary reason is, and I, uh, I say this fairly often, but it bears repeating because I think that ultimately our families are under tremendous attack from every avenue. Uh, and the reason is that we're created in the image of God. 
And when God created us in his image, he not only created us in his image uh, in, in individually, but the family unit is to be a picture. I really think that when you look and you step back and examine the relationships that God has given us in our life, that they are intended to be pictures uh, that lead us to him. And so a, a father in his home that leads his home in a godly manner and a home that is organized and structured according to the biblical method of the home that God has given, what it does is it puts intuitively in the heart of a child uh, that if I can trust my father and my father has led me and my father has provided me for me and my father has taught me and protected me and corrected me, then intuitively it's easy to transfer when we trust Jesus as our savior, that same love and affection and trust and experience to our heavenly father. That's why the, the home is so vitally important this morning because it, it calibrates in our hearts naturally a draw to God or it repels us from him. A, a, a home in which, uh, in which father has failed, in which father has not led spiritually or has not been faithful or has not provided or has not taught or has not invested in time. Though people that come from that background have a more difficult time trusting God living by faith. Why? Because the image that God put for us to see and to model uh, is has been broken down. Now, I say that this morning realizing that in the time in which we live, well more than half of our family units have not followed that model, have no concept of that model, and those relationships are broken down. Uh, and I'm here to tell you, and even by my own testimony, uh, that God, uh, those that are seeking truth, searching for the Lord, want righteousness, that God intervenes in a wonderful and incredible way uh, with, with uh, surrogate relationships, if you will. For me, sometimes it was a ball coach. Sometimes uh, it was a, a school principal or a youth pastor or a pastor. Uh, sometimes it was uh, a, a, a close relative, a, a stepfather. Uh, God uh, made up for those things. I had in my heart a desire to know the Lord, to live for God, to serve the Lord, to grow. Uh, and it, it seemed like that in areas where there were shortcomings, that God wonderfully made up the differences. And I think uh, the key is, is what is the individual's heart? That young person who has a heart for the Lord that wants to learn, that wants to experience God in a real level, uh, the failing of a father does not condemn them necessarily to never finding God or having God's blessing in their life. Uh, it just sometimes can make it a bit more challenging. The ultimate goal is uh, that we lead and guide as a church family all and that we inspire our young people by the way that we live in our testimonies and our love for God and our worship to rise above whatever shortcomings or failures that we have in our culture, in our society, in our homes that God's grace is sufficient and can lift us above. And I think that we'll see that this morning through the message. <clears throat> Though as we look here, uh, we're not starting off on the highest of notes, okay? So I'm not trying to start off this morning, uh, you know, on a down, uh, but on, a, on a kind of a downward trend. But the, the fact of the matter is with this passage is that they're, they're missing some things here. And as the king of Assyria brings in these people, 
He brings them in to repopulate, and they bring with them their culture. They bring with them their own forms of worship. They bring with them the things of their society, and and, and the lions come and devour some of them, and their Assyrian king looks at this and says, hey, it's because we're not uh, we're not worshiping the God of the land or respecting the God of the land, and uh, and he might have been onto something there, but uh, but his response is is to let's get somebody that knows the God of the land because every every nation or land or uh, the sun or the rain had their own gods, and so uh, let's get someone to teach us about this God, uh, not so that we can. Uh, worship him alone, but so that we can add him to our collection of gods. Uh, you see that borne out in down in verse number 33, uh, back up to verse 32. And I mean, these people are, uh, are people that are so corrupt in their worship that they are sacrificing their own children's lives on an altar to these false gods. Uh, and that's, that's pretty beyond our ability to comprehend, I think. Uh, and it talks about God's sacrifice. God does not require human sacrifice. The only human sacrifice that God ever, ever required was the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ to pay our sin debt. Uh, and so, but they are sacrificing their children to appease these gods. And, uh, and it says in verse 32, so they feared the Lord and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places. And that's an important statement there of the lowest of them which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord uh, and served their own gods. Now, that, that seems to be a contradictory statement uh, because you cannot fear the one true and living God and then turn and worship other gods. And so, uh, but notice what he says, after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence, unto this day they do after the former manners they fear not the Lord, neither do they after their statutes or after their ordinances or after the law of the commandment which the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, which he named Israel. And so he's saying on the one hand, they feared God and then they worshiped and then they feared not God. So what's the contradiction here? There's not a contradiction. Uh, the point is, is that they added God to their collection. That they, in a, in a manner of speaking, they said, yes, we're going to respect and reverence the God of Israel because we're coming into their land, but we have no intention of worshiping him and him only. And so in reality, they did not fear God at all. And so on the one hand, he's making the point, yes, in their mind, in their form of worship, they are paying homage, they are reverencing the God of Israel, the God of the land, but in reality... You cannot worship the God of Israel and then worship any other God. It's all or nothing with God. It's all or nothing with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, when we look here, we see them coming in and, uh, and taking the land and, uh, and, and moving in and trying to resettle it. Uh, and then uh, we see the effects of this. And we've uh, read in verses 32 through 34 already, uh, consider that what we see there is the practice of their worship. The practice of their worship. It tells us how they went about their worship. They sacrificed in the high places. The only place properly in this era of time to worship God uh, in a formal setting of that sense was at the temple in sacrifice. It was a place in, in Israel. 
did not go to the temple because the temple was in Judah. <coughs> and so they made their own uh, places of worship, and they called them in many cases high places. The high places were areas up and around the cities and the villages where they would go, and they would make altars and places of worship, and they would make sacrifices to all of their idols and these false gods. Uh, and so I believe what we see here are three primary things when we consider the practice of their worship. And what I mean by that is I think first what we see is that they practice a rational worship. And I believe that you can see this in a lot of churches and denominations in our society and culture in the United States today. Their worship was rational. In other words, uh, in, our, in the day and age in which we live, most people in our, in our country today believe that truth is rational. Uh, they, they believe that the, the truth uh, is as long as you practice your truth, whatever is true to you, whatever seems right to you, uh, whatever, uh, whatever is acceptable uh, and palatable to you. And listen, true faith, the word of God was not written to be palatable. It was written to, to show us the nature and the character and the law of God. It was written not to so that we could transform or bring God down to our level, but so that as we found Christ, He would rise, uh, raise us up to His level. Uh, and so, true. Uh, faith, true, I don't want to use the word religion because I'm a firm believer that religion condemns people to hell. It's relationship with the Savior. And so, uh, when I understand the truth of this, the practice of their worship is that the practice is a rational worship. Okay, uh, the lions came and devoured us because we did not honor the God of the land. So let's honor the God of the land. Let's bring in somebody that knows and they don't go and find someone uh, that is honorable. They don't go and find someone uh, that is uh, that is respectable. No, he says they they made the least of them the priest. They took the worst element of society. And, and listen, uh, the, the worst among us should not be our spiritual leaders. Uh, I'm not interested in sitting in a church service or listening to a podcast uh, or getting online or going to a conference uh, where the man behind the pulpit is not trying his best to live the message that he preaches. And so it just doesn't work. Uh, and I don't want I don't want a staff member. I don't want a deacon. I don't want a Sunday school teacher in our church that is not trying their best to live their life in a manner that pleases God and to live practically the message that's preached from this pulpit, whether it's me that preaches it or a guest or another staff member. Uh, lead by example. I'm a firm believer in leadership by example. I believed it before I went to the military. And if there was anything that was ingrained in me in my four years in the Marine Corps, it was lead by example. You know, and all the time I was in the military, I never had, uh, I was never given an order uh, or taught a task that was not demonstrated fully by someone of a higher rank as it was shown and taught to us. Uh, and I believe all of our branches probably operate that way. I just haven't ever been in the other one. So uh, we, uh, we have to lead by example. 
Godly leadership cannot inspire and cannot take us to a place that's close to God if it does not seek to walk with God on a daily basis. Uh, it is it is unthinkable to me that someone would say, "Hey, pastor, uh, I'm uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, be this assistant pastor. I'm gonna pastor this church or someone in another ministry even and say, well, uh, you know, it's it's my job on Sunday uh, and to prepare through the week, uh, but it's just a job to me. That's unthinkable. That's a higher the Bible condemns that, but that's what they've done here. They said, listen, uh, we, we have not honored the God of the land. We've got to honor the God of the land. Let's just find whoever's willing to do it. It doesn't matter what their character is. It doesn't matter what their, matter what their motive is. Uh, it, it's just uh, the, rationally, we've got to look at this and practically and say that we have been suffering because we haven't worshipped this God. So let's worship this God. And listen, we can put that into practice today. We come into uh, into a Bible-believing, preaching, practicing church, which is what we strive to be here. Uh, and we come to a place where we're not a people that are perfect, but are striving to live lives that please the Lord and that honor Christ. Uh, then when we come in, uh, people that would come and say, hey, uh, you know, I just want to, I just want to feel good about how I live during the week. Uh, I just want to feel good about uh, about all the things in my life. Pastor, come in uh, and make me feel like I'm worshiping God. Give me a motivational speech and uh, and help me not feel guilty about the sin that I have in my life. Uh, you're not going to find that kind of worship service environment or preaching here. Amen. Because I believe the Bible confronts our sin. I believe the Holy Spirit confronts our sin. I believe that the Holy Spirit is working in your life and in my life on a daily basis, not to leave us as we are or to let us drift farther from God, but to inspire us to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. And as we do that, God begins to work in our life and to bless. And God begins to use our lives to reach others and to bring conviction in the lives of others. Listen, it's not our job to go out and uh, and and condemn people or to uh, correct lives. It's our job to lift up Christ and let him draw all men unto himself. So the practice of their worship was a rational worship. Secondly, I believe that the practice of their worship was a worship of convenience. Listen, there are a lot of times uh, in... And the things that you see here, there are a lot of things that you see in uh, modern day uh, worship in our uh, in our nation uh, that it's just really a matter of convenience. Well, uh, you know, it's inconvenient for you to get up and go to church on Sunday morning. So come on Saturday night. That way you can sleep in on Sunday. There's just something about uh, about coming in uh, on, on, on the day that Jesus resurrected as the Bible constructed and as the early church demonstrated. Uh, and there's just something about inconveniencing myself. Uh, if you could call 10 o'clock at Sunday school an inconvenience, uh, inconveniencing myself uh, to spend time with God. There's got to be some form of sacrifice. God's not worried about our convenience. God is worried about our worship and our heart and our walk with him and our purity uh, and our and, and our love for him. We're not about and the Bible's not about and what God is not pleased with in this besides their worship of the idols is that what they're really seeking here is just a worship of convenience. Not only that, but they worship blindly. I mean, for crying out loud, they're following somebody that's the lowest among them. 
hey, we need, uh, we need someone to lead us spiritually. Uh, let's, let's, uh, you know, I, I think I saw, uh, that homeless guy standing on the corner between Chick-fil-A and Whataburger out there. Uh, he needs a job. Let's bring him in and let him be our spiritual leader. It just doesn't work. You, I do not expect that anybody would come to this church and follow everything that's presented blindly. I try to be careful that when I state my opinion to say so, but, uh, you know, if something slips in there that's my opinion, it doesn't have any authority. The only thing that's authoritative is the Word of God. But what is proclaimed from this book is authoritative, and it bears our not just reverence, but our implementation into our lives. And as the Holy Spirit of God brings his convicting power on my heart and on my life, it's my God-given duty as a Christian to respond to him. He is reaching out to me in love. He is showing me and confronting me with truth. Uh, he is trying to lead me uh, to a, into the image and develop me into the image of my Savior. I ought not resist that and run from that i should embrace it it is the love of god made manifest in my life don't follow blindly don't sit in a sunday school class or listen to the pastor's sermon this morning or tonight and just say well uh, the pastor said it so uh, we got to do it no you only have to do what the bible says to do we only have to practice what the bible says to practice it's the principles of God's word that lead us. Do not fall into the trap of worshiping in this church or any other church. Blindly know the word of God. Learn the word of God. Follow the principles of truth in God's word. And when the pastor's wrong, uh, love him. He's just a man. Uh, but, but follow the word of God. Love the Lord. The practice of their worship was, was rational. It was convenient and it was blind. And then we see in number two this morning that God rebukes their worship. Now, as I mentioned earlier, his rebuke of their worship here is not uh, the typical, uh, I'm going to bring fire and brimstone down on you, or I'm going to send you off uh, into disbursement uh, and have you invaded. They're already been invaded. They've already had these people coming into their land. They already are going through that. Now he lovingly tries to appeal to them and say uh, to them uh, the, some truth. Notice in verse 35, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, Ye shall not fear other gods, nor bow yourselves to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a stretched out arm, him shall ye fear, and him shall ye worship, and to him shall ye do sacrifice. And the statutes and the ordinance and the law and the commandment which he wrote for you, ye shall observe to do forevermore, and ye shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I have made with with you ye shall not forget neither shall ye fear other gods but the lord your god ye shall fear and he shall deliver you out of the hand of all of your enemies so what does god do here god just simply begins to remind them of his greatness he reminds them of his power he reminds them of his love he reminds them of his leadership. He says, listen, these gods that you worship in the high places, these gods that these invaders are sacrificing their children to, these gods that are all around you, you need to let just, they've never done anything for you. They've never helped you. They are just sticks and they're stones. They cannot respond. They cannot hear. They cannot love. They do not care. But I do. And I proved it when I came to you in Egypt. 
I proved it when you had been in bondage for 430 years. I proved it when I lifted the yoke of Pharaoh's slavery off of your shoulders and brought you through the Red Sea. I proved it when I led you across the wilderness and provided for your every need. I proved it when I brought you across the Jordan and dropped the walls of Jericho. I proved it when you conquered the land and drove out the people and you lived in my blessing and you lived under my power and you lived under my provision. What God is simply doing to them now as they're under the pressure and the burden and they are reaping uh, what they have sown in their sin is saying to them while they're under the crushing weight of their sin again, he's saying, listen, remember me. I'm the God that loved you. I'm the God that saved you. I'm the God that led you. I'm the God that fed you. I'm the God that has met every need that you'll ever have. And if you'll respond to me, and if you'll love me, and if you'll come back to me, and if you'll forsake these other gods, and remember the covenant that I've made with you, then you'll obey my commands, and you'll come back under my protection and my loving arm, then I will defeat your enemies, and I will drive them out, and I will give you back your land. What a wonderful God. You know, it's a time like this when I would look and think, man, if God, if I was God, I would be so frustrated with my people that uh, I've, uh, I've, I've done all these things for them. And then I have, I've, I've warned them repeatedly that judgment was going to come and that people were going to invade. And they still rejected me. Uh, if I'm God, I'm wanting to just like stomp on them and smash them in the ground like a little bug. All right, if that's the way you feel, I'm done with you. I'll just start over with somebody else. But that's not what God does. God says, I love you. Let me remind you. You're under the weight of your sin, but I'm still here. And I still save. And I still restore. And I'll still provide. But his rebuke is a rebuke of of kindness and love and compassion. What we see here is that they were reminded of God's covenant with them. God says, I've covenanted with you. I've done all these things for you. I've promised them. We see that they were reminded of God's potential blessing. Listen, blessing from God will not come while we're in sin. It will not come while we're in rebellion. It will not come while we are practicing a a, a religion or a worship uh, that is rational or of convenience or if we're following uh, blindly. God wants us to worship in spirit and in truth. He wants our whole heart. He wants our lives living sacrifice presenting to Him, not so that He can uh, not so that He can be an overbearing and overpowering God but so that he can be a loving, kind God that leads us and guides us and communes with us so that he can use our lives to impact the lives of those around us. That's what God wants to do with you and with me. The rebuke of their worship. Thirdly, this morning, consider their decision about their worship practices. Now they have to make a decision. You know, it's that way every Sunday. We come in, we open the Word of God, The Word of God is presented. The Holy Spirit confronts things in our heart while it's being preached. And sometimes the Holy Spirit encourages us with the Word of God as it's being preached. Uh, But at the end, when we have the invitation, we have to make a decision. We have to respond. Listen, everything about Victory Baptist Church, everything about the preaching that happens here, everything about the song service that happens here brings us to that point of decision. I'm not interested in pastoring a church that just coddles and appeases people so that they feel good about their life. I'm interested in pastoring a church of people that have a hunger and a heart and a desire for God that are willing to come in and to say, God, examine me. God, show me 
who I really am. God, develop me. God, forgive my sin. God, bless my life. God, edify me and grow me and show me those things. That's what the Word of God does. It brings us to a point of decision. And if we sit under the preaching of God's Word long enough, we are going to come to a point where we are either going to grow so weary of the burden of the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that we just have to say, I can't go back there because I can't deal with this anymore. Or we are going to come and we are going to humble ourselves before God and we are going to say, God, I surrender all to you. That's the life that God wants from us. That's, I believe, the culture that God wants in his New Testament church. They have a decision to make. God's brought them through this. Their sin has brought this upon them. And God has confronted them about their sin lovingly and kindly and gently. In verse number 40, they respond. How be it? They did not hearken, but they did after their former manner. Now, before you think like I think that that's kind of mind-blowing, consider that that pretty well describes most of us this morning too. We may not this morning be in a place where we're saying, God, I reject you and I'm going to worship this other God. Not that boldly. But how many things do I have in my life and how many things do you have in your life that God convicts us about on a regular basis that we say, God, I love you, but I'm going to hang on to this. God, I love you, and I want to give you much of my life, but you can't have that. You can't have that relationship, or you can't have uh, that habit, or you can't have that hobby, or you can't have that whatever it may be. The result of their decision was that they decided that their rebellion would be sustained. God, we have rebelled against you, and we have done things the way that we want to do them, And we're going to continue to do it that way. We're going to continue to live that way. We're going to continue to worship that way. We're going to continue to be governed that way. The result of their decision was that they decided to stay in their rebellion. And the result of that decision was that their their captivity would be sustained. The Samaritans didn't go away. They became the Samaritans. As the Assyrians came in and they came to Samaria, and you look forward to the time of the New Testament with Lord Jesus Christ, above all people, these people are hated by the, by the true Israelites because they're intermingled. Their worship is intermingled. Now, a lot of people that try to, <coughs> try to take passages of Scripture like this and say, uh, you know, that, that means that everybody, all the races have to be divided. Marriage has to be this and marriage has to be that. Listen, I've been married for 30 years to a Spanish lady uh, and we love each other dearly. And God has blessed our family and God has blessed our ministry. Uh, and we praise God for that. I don't believe that any of these things in the Old Testament speak to that at all. I believe that it speaks to worship. It speaks to relationship with God. God always had a place and a way for the stranger to come into Israel. For that outsider to come. Listen, if these people had come from Assyria and had come in and said, God, we we worship you, we reject our other gods, we humble ourselves before you, then they would have been welcomed, they would have been loved by God, they would have been cared for by God, they would have been assimilated in. But they didn't do that. They rejected. And they polluted the worship of God's people even further. 
And because of that, those that tried to live, though they were wrong in much of their worship in the New Testament as they rejected the Messiah, they hated them because of their impurity. They would go around their whole area. That was all born and stemmed from these, the result of sin. Sin is a terrible, horrible, burdensome yoke that you and I do not have the power to break off of our shoulders. But the love of God has already broken it, if we'll let him. He's, he's waiting and longing. See, man, Pastor, the message has been awful negative this morning. Well, their response was negative, but I want you to consider the opposite. If what they did was true, and it was, then consider what would have happened had their worship not been rational, but would have been pure. Had their worship not been a worship of convenience, but a worship of sincerely, truly seeking God and obeying Him. If their worship had been a worship that wasn't a matter of uh, just following along blindly uh, whatever the status quo was, but would say, God, would you challenge me and would you show me your truth? Would you this morning, as you sit here, say that if the Holy Spirit of God spoke to your heart, and if you're here this morning and you feel something in your heart saying, you know, this makes a lot of sense and this resonates with me and this is this is making me maybe even a little bit uncomfortable because, because it's something that's confronting me in here and how dare that pastor confront me about this thing. And now, listen, I'm not confronting anybody this morning. The Word of God is confronted. And if you feel that way in your heart, if you feel that, that is the Holy Spirit of God bringing His conviction. That's not a pastor saying, hey, let's put a guilt trip on. That's the Holy Spirit working. Praise God for that. Even if it makes me uncomfortable this morning, it is God working in my life. That's a good thing. If God's showing me this morning that, hey, uh, you know, you need this truth, you need this God, you need this Savior, because if you don't find Him, He's the only way of salvation. And I listen, and when I said earlier about religion condemning people to hell because there's a religion out there in the world says that you have to do this, that, or the other to have eternal life. That's not what Jesus said. Being a member of a church, being baptized, uh, taking communion, doing all of these different acts or going and doing all the things that are said to be done or acts of penance or burning candles or whatever it may be. Uh, all of those things are rejected by the truth of God's word. That is man's religion that has nothing to do with God, though it is cloaked in, in, in terminology and the image of God. The true religion is, is that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's only one way to heaven this morning. Say, so Pastor, you're just saying that because it's a Baptist church and you want it to be the Baptist way. It doesn't have anything to do with the Baptist way. It has to do with Jesus' way. Jesus is the one way. There is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until I realize that Jesus died for my sins and what these people that come from Assyria needed to do was not look at the lions and say, hey, uh, we've got to appease that God. They should have looked at the lions and said, we need to find out who this God is and we need to worship him. And if that means forsaking all else, then so be it. He is the one true and living God. And my friend, that's what we need this morning. We need people that will come and say, I may have served the God of religion or the God of this church or that church. I may have served the God of my culture or my, uh, or my own heart's desire. But what I need this morning is to serve the one true and living God. He changes lives. He inspires life. <clears throat> say, Pastor, how do I come to that place? Well, I would say this morning 
that he sums it up when he tells us the decision that they make and then shows the the result of the decision in verse 41. So these nations feared the Lord and served their graven images, both their children and their children's children, as did their fathers, so do they unto this day. And what he reveals to us here is this, that the reason that they are so headstrong and following what they've always done. It's because of what their dads did. It's because it's what their granddads did. It's because it's what their great-granddaddies did. And that doesn't mean that that automatically condemns me to live the life that my father or my grandfather or my great-grandfather lived, nor does it mean that I am automatically a shoe-in if I had a godly father and grandfather and great-grandfather, that it just makes it automatic that I'm going to be a great servant of God. But I want you to consider a few passages this morning that deal with this. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse number 7, he said, Keeping mercy for thousands, we see God's compassion, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. We must seek forgiveness. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children under the third and unto the fourth generation. Numbers chapter 14 and verse number 18. In Numbers chapter 14 and verse number 18. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and the fourth generation. In Deuteronomy chapter number 5. And verse number 9. He says again. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them. Talking about false gods. Nor serve them. For I the Lord thy God am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. Unto the third and the fourth generation of them. That hate me. And showing mercy unto thousands of them. That love me and keep my commandments. Don't you consider this. And we'll be wrap, wrap this up this morning. there are people that worshiped falsely. There are people that have lived in judgment. There are people that, uh, that are suffering and they do so because they simply are following the path that was set before them by their fathers. I have two sons and two daughters and even my granddaughters come to the house sometimes. And if it's not Uh, the boys when they were small uh, and I think every family probably has the same exact thing happen when our kids get to be toddlers they find mom's shoes the girls or dad's shoes the guys and they slip their feet in them and they're traipsing around like they're they can't even walk because they're dragging them around I mean my wife's got little bitty feet they're about three inches long Uh, and my granddaughters come in and try to fit my three-year-old granddaughter almost fits in her shoe it's a little bit of an exaggeration but not a whole lot another year or two she probably will and if she tries, tries to walk in those things, and if she can't even get, and if they are wedges or they've got heels, you can hang it up, and it's, it's just a comedy show. Why? Because there's something about us as children that long to emulate those who've gone before us. And that's the point of the message this morning. I believe that's the point of this passage here this morning. I believe that's the point of God visiting the iniquity or the sin of the fathers. It's not that God is forcing us to repeat the sins of previous generations. It's that what we have had instilled in us by example, 
by testimony, by teaching of the previous generations is crucial to the development of our values and our thinking and how we live and how we view God and how we process that information. And if you're here this morning and the heritage that you have been left is not a heritage that's helped you live for love and walk with God. Praise God that God has intervened in your life and put you in a place and put your path across people that know truth, that love truth, that have lived truth, that have caused you to look and say, this is what I've been comfortable with all my life, but clearly it is not what God is looking for. That's a wonderful thing. If you're fortunate enough tonight or this morning to be able to look back at your heritage and say, thank God for a mom and dad that loved God and faithfully served him. Thank God for a grandparent, grandparents that loved God and faithfully served him. Thank God for great grandparents that loved God and faithfully served him. That's a wonderful, wonderful, rare, precious thing. Well, pastor, if that's such a rare thing, then we're doomed. No, because God loves, because God is plenteous in mercy and forgiveness because God is waiting to intervene. And the message that I would give you this morning as we close is not fear and dismay. It is a message of recognize the truth and the value or the lack thereof of what your life has been and where you are and make a decision right now that the generations that follow you will have the godly example that they should have. will have someone that loves God with all their heart, that will have someone that will teach them the truths of God's word, that will have someone that will inspire them to live a life that God can bless and that God can touch and that God can use for his glory. That's what God wants. God is not in the business of saying, hey, you've sinned and so I'm done with you. God is in the business of saying is, hey, listen, you've been trapped in a cycle of sin and it's been passed down from you from generation to generation. It's been passed down to you in culture and society. It's been passed down to you in many cases, even by the church that you have tended and the religion that's been imposed upon you. He said, but I'm here and I love you and I'm intervening and I want to show you my true self. And if you'll embrace me, God says, for who I am and what I am, then I will save your soul and I will change your life and I will bless you and I will empower you and I will use you to impact the lives of others to make a difference so that many more will find their way to righteousness and escape the, the con condemnation of their sin and hell. That's what God wants to do with you. That's what God wants to do with me. But I'm telling you, men, it starts with dad. It starts with the leader of the home. Dad, if you're not right this morning, get right. So, Pastor, if my children are grown or my children are almost grown, it's not too late. I read a statistic or someone told me a statistic just in the last two or three weeks that's amazing. It gave the statistic if, if the child got saved first, found Christ first, how many moms and dads the family changed? It's a pretty low number. If mom was the first one to come to Christ, it was a better number. But if dad came to Christ... Particularly if dad came to Christ first. It was something like 80 or 90% of those families followed suit, followed dad, gave their heart to Christ and lived a godly life. Dad, you're important. And you may have been marginalized by society, but you've not been marginalized by God. You have a role to play. You have a tremendous responsibility to bear. You have eyes that are upon you. 
that needs you to live righteously and godly and to know God and to learn of God. You have uh, eyes upon you that are looking and longing to be inspired and to be led uh, and to be loved and to be shown and taught the truth of God's word. Inspire them. Don't fail them. Don't disappoint them. Don't let them down and certainly don't let God down. An established pattern of life and a manner of thinking that steers the life to repeat the sins of previous generations is debilitating. But an established pattern of life and a manner of thinking and worship that leads and guides and inspires our, our wives and our children to live for and to love God with all their heart is a wonderful, wonderful gift. Today, dads, we'll go home. We'll have a, probably a special lunch. And I, my wife yesterday, what do you want for lunch? Whatever I wanted, she was going to make it today. She might have even fried on Sunday if I would ask. That's a big no-no in our house. You don't fry on Sunday. <coughs> she just don't want to smell like chicken. She, it's not that she's got something against frying. You're going to go home and, and you may even receive some gifts. But what about the gift that you've given? Not just the gift of a beating heart and lungs that draw air. But not just the gift of a roof overhead. But the gift of the God that provides it. Dad, that's on you. That's on me. Will we rise to that occasion? Will we be the fathers, the husbands, the dads that our wives and our children deserve for us to be, long for us to be, and need for us to be?